We studied last week and I said that marriage, people say their marriage is broken when that, what they really mean is their spouse is broken, right? They say their marriage is broken, but they really mean their spouse is broken. Divorce happens long before courtrooms. Today, Pastor David will continue teaching us what God has to say about divorce and the importance of and the difference between vows and oaths. Get ready for some life-changing instruction from God's Word, and here's Pastor David. Long before courtrooms are entered, long before assets are divided and parenting plans are entered into and whatever, the divorce happens long before that. It begins with the breaking of vows. The breaking of vows. Now, what's a vow? This is, this is important. A vow, really simple, a promise to God. That's what a vow is, promise to God. I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible. We vow when we promise something to God. Any of you have done premarital counseling with me, um, some of you have done that, you know that we're going to hit the issue of vow right up front. Right up front. Oh, you want to get married? Let's talk about what a vow means. I want people who are getting married to understand what they're actually doing, what they're actually doing. Marriage vows, like all vows, all promises to God, are incredibly serious. They're incredibly serious things. You are literally promising to God what you will do for this person, right? To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Now, lately, a lot of people have started writing their own vows, right? They want to write their own vows. Here's a, here's a few I found on the internet. I vow to protect you from spiders as long as we both shall live. I promise to unclog the tub, even though only one of us has long hair. <laughs> I vow never to steal your covers unless you're hogging them. I vow to always let you have the last blueberry pancake. My personal favorite. Now that we have gotten skinny for this wedding, let's get real fat together. <laughs> These are funny and they're cute and whatever, but they miss the importance of what's happening at a wedding. They just miss it. If you do not understand your vows and what a vow is, that you're promising something to God and you don't take them seriously up front, let me just tell you something. Divorce becomes a lot easier later because you haven't understood what you're doing. You haven't understood what you've entered into. Divorce happens because richer was fine, but poorer is not so great, right? Divorce happens because health is all good, but sickness, no bueno, right? Not great. It happens because we don't love, because we don't cherish. We don't do all these things until death do us part. That's why divorce happens. Marriages break down because we are not honest to God with our promises. We do not keep our promises to him. That's why marriages break down. For those who are married and struggling, let me give you a little something. Think about your promise your promises to God that you made. Think about your promises to God and start loving and cherishing. Make sure that you are fulfilling your vows. Because if you fulfill your vows well, you might be surprised at the response of your spouse. You start loving, honoring, cherishing, doing all that kind of stuff, you might be surprised 
at what happens in that relationship and how it might blossom. For those of you who are divorced and you and your spouse have not remarried, hey, maybe, depending on the reason that you had a divorce, maybe it's worth looking at the opportunity of reconciliation. It's a possibility. For those of you who are divorced and remarried, if your marriage ended because of your sin, because you didn't keep your vows, confess your sin, repent, and keep your vows to your new spouse. If your marriage ended and you had a true biblical reason to divorce, it was an allowable reason, I believe that you're free to remarry, that you're not committing adultery. Okay? There are those who disagree. There are those who disagree, I'll just tell you, out in Christendom. Um, by Christendom, I just mean in the church, people who are Christians. There are some who believe that you ought not to get divorced for almost any reason at all, um, maybe adultery, but if so, you should stay unmarried forever if you get divorced. I don't believe that for, for a number of reasons. I just don't think that the whole testimony of Scripture suggests that, okay? And some people in the church really do treat divorced people, people who have been through a divorce, horribly. To even say divorced people is to put a label on people in, in, in some way. I don't talk about people with their other sin and say, oh, liared people, oh, people who did this thing, gossipers or whatever. We don't name anybody else by, by that type of thing. But with divorce, for some reason, we put a stigma on people. And I don't think that's appropriate. Not appropriate. I just don't think it's godly. I don't think it's biblical to look at that something that may have been a sin, may not have been a sin, by the way, as we've discussed, in their past and somehow judge them for it in the future. There are people who, uh, who will not let people be in positions of leadership in the church, who won't let them do certain things if they've ever been through a divorce. Okay, I don't believe any of that. I don't believe any of that. What I do believe is that God hates divorce. What I do believe is that you ought not to get divorced unless there's a may that allows you to do so, and that those are very limited. Those are very limited. That if you have been divorced in the past, and it was as a result of you breaking vows, that that's a sin that should be confessed and repented. But that if you've been remarried, I don't expect you to, nor do I think it's right, that you would, okay, well, i got to leave my new husband, and i got to go back to the old husband because that wasn't a good marriage, and I didn't do the right thing. No, I don't think any of that. God can restore. God can heal anything. Okay? But that doesn't mean that divorce is no big deal. Just so that you're aware, if you come to me and tell me that you have fallen out of love with your wife, okay, and you tell me that you're going to divorce her because God wants you to be happy, you're not going to get a wink and a nod from me. You're going to get church discipline. That's how that's going to go down. Because it's a sin. It's a real sin. It's a serious sin. The heart issue is that you ought not to divorce. You ought not to divorce, except where God has allowed it. And if you have divorced for reasons other than that, then like any other sin, you confess and you repent. If you're divorced and remarried, you've confessed and repented, or you, or you weren't in sin, but you've confessed and repented about vows that you've broken in your past marriage, I don't believe that you're an adulterer. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I could be wrong, but that's not what I think is happening here. I disagree with those who, who interpret it that way. But divorce is a big deal. It's a very big deal. And anyone in this room who has been through a divorce can tell you just how big of a deal it is. It's devastating. A lot of people describe it like losing a body part. It's, it, it really, really, really is damaging. And God, that's why God hates it. That's why he talks about it in the way that he does. Because when you've become one flesh with someone and that gets ripped apart, it doesn't come without damage. It doesn't come without damage. But I want what Jesus Christ wants. 
I want those who are called to singleness and celibacy to be supported by the church in prayer and strong relationships with their brothers and sisters in Christ. That means if you're married and you have people around you in the church that are single, they're not married. They don't have as many people to hang out with as you. You've always got that other person to hang out with, whether you like it or not. Grab a single person. Bring them into your world. They have a high calling. It's tough for them, in this world especially, to be single and celibate, which is our command as single people. It's hard. Support them. I also want those who have made vows to God in marriage to keep those vows and recognize the seriousness of breaking those vows. Recognize what kind of a sin it is to lie to God. Not cool. Not okay. I want people who are married to be sexually faithful, to be emotionally faithful, to love and to cherish. Man, if we could just get that, the love and cherish thing, half, if not more, of the marriage counseling and the things like that that I run into just wouldn't happen if people were loving and cherishing. That can cover an awful lot of annoying habits, you know, and things like that. Loving and cherishing is a big deal. I want those who have past sin in marriage to stop living in guilt and shame over it, if that's you. Receive and accept God's mercy and grace and move forward hungering and thirsty for righteousness. That's your duty. Not to act like the cross wasn't powerful enough to cover the sin of a failed relationship or sexual immorality or whatever it is that we've been going through. Because these are tough things. Looking into the law is tough on this one. Looking into the scripture is tough on this one. It shows us who we are. But here's the deal. You are not to live in the shame and regret of your past. To do so is to say that the cross wasn't enough, but we sing sometimes here, the cross was enough. You better believe it was enough. You better believe it was enough. I don't want any of my brothers and sisters living in shame and regret for their past when my Lord Jesus Christ has paid for your sin and he's paid for mine. We don't have to live in that. The point of this is not to shame people or to judge people or to make people feel bad. The point is to say, let's confess, let's repent, let's turn away. That's what repent means. Let's turn away from that and let's move forward in righteousness. Not looking back, not feeling shame, The Apostle Paul says, forgetting what is behind. You notice he didn't say, I forgot what is behind. He says, forgetting what is behind. Because it's an active thing. Every time that Satan wants to come to you and bring your shame, he's an accuser. He wants to bring your shame. He wants to bring your past. He wants to bring your regrets up. Don't allow it. Forget it. Forgetting what is behind and pressing forward. That's who we are. That's who we are. Now, that brings us to the last section of our study for today, and that is truth-telling. Oaths and truth-telling. Matthew 5, 33-36, we read it earlier. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now, the first thing some of you are thinking is some of you are like, wait a second. Wait a minute. What do you mean I can't make one hair white or black? I've been making my hair black since my body's been making it white, right? We know. We know. Back in those days, there were all kinds of oaths being taken and there were all kinds of rules. There was a whole section of rules about oaths. Okay? If you swore by the temple, 
you didn't have to keep that promise, but if you swore toward the temple, you had to keep that promise, right? There was all kinds of stuff. Listen to what Jesus says to the Jewish leaders in Matthew 23, 16 through 22. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar, swears by it and all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Some people were making oaths and it was basically like crossing your fingers. I swear by the altar, but I didn't swear by the gift on the altar, so you can't hold me to it. There was that kind of stuff going on. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. It was just a way of lying. Now, some Christians have taken this passage to uh, believe that all oaths are wrong, that you can't take any oaths. The Quakers are a specific example of that. They actually brought in uh, the idea of affirming instead of swearing. So like when you put your uh, hand up in the courtroom and they say, do you swear to tell the truth? A lot of courts will say, do you swear or affirm, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, okay? And so they would, they would say, is, I'm not going to swear, I'm just going to affirm that I always tell the truth. That's what they would say. It's interesting, okay? That's, that's the way some Christians take it. But what is an oath, and how is it different than a vow? First, an oath is a promise to somebody else with God as your witness. A vow is a promise to God. An oath is a promise to somebody else with God as your witness. Okay, you've heard that. God is my witness, blah, 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 blah. That's an oath. That's an oath, okay? We read a similar command about oaths in James 5.12. It says... But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. What does this mean? It's about the heart. Surprisingly enough, it's about the heart. Who has to take oaths? Who has to swear they're telling the truth all the time? Liars. Right? Liars. Liars have to swear oaths because the assumption is that without something else, more than their word just to hold them, they'll lie. Ask yourself this question. Would you believe a person more who was a dishonest person normally but took an oath or a person who was regularly honest and did not take an oath? You're going to believe the honest person. You're going to believe the honest person. Here's the deal, surprising or not to you. Uh, a liar will lie whether they take an oath or not. They will. Trust me. I'm a lawyer. It happens. Okay? Liars will lie whether they take an oath or not. But God always cares that we tell the truth. He always cares that we tell the truth. We've gotten so used to lying in our culture that it's not even looked at as that big of a deal anymore. Right? Our friends lie. Our political leaders lie. Even our religious leaders lie sometimes. Many of us justify lies by characterizing them as little white lies. It's just a little white lie, right? We don't do that with any other sin. It was just a little pink murder, right? It wasn't like a big murder. It's just a little green theft. That one makes sense because money's green. But with lies, we somehow think that we're really not hurting anybody if they're small enough. We are. We are. We are treating the person that we are lying to like a thing instead of a person. We are treating God's commands with disdain. And we are making ourselves untrustworthy 
We're breaking ourselves when we lie. Here's the thing. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's in John 14, 6. There is nothing false in him. God is the truth. If we're people of God, we want to be people of the truth. There is no place in the life of a believer for dishonesty. There is no place in the life of a believer for lies. The father of lies is the devil. That's where lying started. Right there in the garden. That's where lies come from. Lies have no place in the life of a believer. When we tell the truth, we're being like Jesus. We're being like God. We're living in truth, and he is truth. When we tell a lie, we're being like the devil. It's that simple. Maybe that helps you a little bit the next time you want to bend the truth. Next time you want to cover over a sin, a mistake, or whatever. When you lie, you aren't being like Jesus. There's only one other way to be. That's like the devil. You don't want to be like that. I could spend a lot of time on lies, but it is truly simple. Stop lying. For some of you, you need to hear this. Stop lying. Stop lying to your spouse. Stop lying to your boss. Stop lying to your friends and to your children and to your coworkers and whatever it is. Just stop. Stop. That is the heart of the command here. Be a truth teller. Be a truth teller. Be Christ-like. Live the kingdom of heaven life. Do not sit there and justify your dishonesty. Here's the thing. If you need a lawyer to tell you not to lie, you're in trouble, okay? Don't lie. Stop. I, you know, when I think about my relationship with my wife, there is probably, these passages are so important because there's probably nothing that has led more. And we have a, a fantastic marriage, not because we're so great, but because God is so great. But let me tell you, there's nothing that has made our marriage stronger than keeping our vows, especially sexual fidelity, and telling the truth to each other. Not having to sit here and think about the things that keeping my life straight. Her not having to sit there and think about keeping her life straight. Being honest. Some, you mess up, you take the blame. You don't lie about it. Right? Sexual fidelity and honesty, that goes with loving and cherishing. You do those things, you're going to have a strong relationship. Why? Because you're being like Christ, who should be the center of every relationship you have, but especially of your marriage. At the end of the day, divorce and lying are from the same heart place. They're from the same heart place. They're dishonesty to God in not keeping our marriage vows and dishonesty to others, to other people in lying. That's what they are. And praise God, he has provided grace for us in both. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can be forgiven. We can be right today, right now. 1 John 1, 9, we read this last week, we're going to read it again. Probably read it many times over the years, Lord willing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. Some of us need to confess and repent today. It's just the way it is. Some of us need to put lies and dishonesty toward God and lies and dishonesty toward other people away from us today. That's where we need to be. We need to commit to being like Jesus, to being truth tellers and living the truth with the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. That's who we need to be today. Some of us don't know Jesus. 
Some of us don't know Jesus. Some of us aren't walking with Jesus. Here in this room, listening online, here's the good news. Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For some of you, that's good news today. For all of us, it's good news. But for some of us, you've never done that. This is the day. This is your day. Do not wait another day. Don't wait another minute. Right now, no matter where you are or what you're doing, ask Jesus to forgive your sins and be your Lord and Savior. And if you still have questions about all this, or we can help you make that life-changing decision for Christ, call us at 360-885-9000. Or come see us at Axe Church. Get all the info you need at axechurchnw.org. Finally, ever heard the saying, an eye for an eye? Join us next time to find out what that's really all about. That's right here with Pastor David Robinson on Contemplate.